0: Hello again, everyone, and welcome back to The Frontline with Joe and Joe. Joe Pasillo, as always, joined by Joe Resinello. And once more, dear brothers and sisters, let us go into the breach on the Veritas Catholic Radio Network, 1350 on your AM dial, 103.9 on your FM dial, spreading the truth of the Catholic faith in the New York City metropolitan area. Two things, download the app, the Veritas app. We are an EWT an affiliate, so you get access to all of our station's content, original programming, the whole nine yards, not just Frontline with Joe and Joe. And please share the app uh, with your friends. And if you like what Joe and I do, you can find us on social media, primarily in two spots, uh, Twitter at with joe and joe on twitter and also on youtube at the frontline tv we thank you as always for your support we're really growing um on both on both channels uh today uh at the frontline with joe and joe we're very pleased and honored to be joined by father brian Malady. and many of you out there know father brian uh and we're going to be discussing his new book a primer on fundamental moral theology now don't change The radios don't change the channel because he said fundamental moral theology. If we as Catholics knew a little bit more about fundamental moral theology, we may not be in as bad a shape as we are in America. But the problem is we don't recognize these things. This is not me being judgmental. Joe and I, we need to learn just as much as anybody else. And we learn from our guests. And Joe and I will be learning from Father Milady about these things. And we're happy that he has written this book. It's out from Sophia Press. So please, as as always, we ask you to support our Catholic publishers. Uh, so please buy it from the publisher. Now, many of you out there, Father Brian has been in media for a very long time. Many of you will recognize him, uh, having seen him on uh, EWTN. You can see him on the journey home a few years ago. He was, you know, he was on that, uh, even though he's a, a lifelong Catholic. Um, he joined Marcus Grodi several times on that show. Uh, but having said all that, let me give Father a brief uh bio, a brief history. Introduction father, Brian Thomas Beckett, M'Lady. I love it, Joe Resinello. Brian Thomas Beckett-Molady is fantastic. O.P. is the son of an Air Force officer and was raised uh, throughout the United States. Uh, I think father was telling us, Syracuse Day in Redondo Beach, California. Father's been all over the place. Um, He entered the Dominican Order in 1966. He was ordained in Oakland, California in 1972. He has been a parish priest, a high school teacher, a retreat master, mission preacher, and a university professor. He received his doctorate in sacred theology from the Angelicum University in Rome, and was a, and was professor there. For six years. He taught at several colleges, universities, and seminaries in the United States. He's an academician of the Catholic Academy of Science. He's an adjunct professor at Holy Apostles Seminary in Cromwell, Connecticut, and preaches parish missions and retreats. He has several series um, on Mother Angelica's EWCN television network. He's the author of several books and numerous articles. He's also the author of the question and answer column in Homiletic and Pastoral Review. He is the a theological consultant to the Institute on Religious Life, Father Brian Malady. Welcome to the front line with Joe and Joe.
2: Okay, well, thank you very much. I can see I'm going to have to send you an updated bio. <laughs> hey,
0: we'll, I, we'll worry about that the next time. I, huh?
2: I, I retired from teaching a few years ago and uh, one of the things I would be helpful to sometimes is to mention that uh, I had the privilege and I was in, enjoyed very much uh, teaching in Rome for six years and I became uh, an, an adopted Italian and uh, I left my heart in Sardinia. <laughs> so uh, I, my father, when he visited us, said, I don't know what happened to that kid some roman soldier must have gotten over the walls somewhere in our family background because i i uh, really loved uh the italians and being in there in italy too so let's say uh, the name of the father son and holy spirit amen hail mary full of grace the lord is with thee blessed art thou among women and blessed is the fruit of thy womb jesus
1: holy mary, mary mother of god pray for us sinners now in the hour of our death amen amen
2: our lady's seat of wisdom pray, pray, pray for, us. for us now so, what you said about go ahead father what you said about the fundamental moral is very true and very important and i can tell you several things uh, you know someone who has been a teacher most of his life beginning in high school teaching in los angeles back in the 70s and South, near South Central. Uh, people today are trying to live uh, an adult experience of religion based on a form of religion, maybe that they only learned if they learned it up until the fifth or sixth grade. Most people have doctor's degrees or advanced degrees, master's degrees in their profession. But they have no understanding of their religion. When I was uh, given parish missions this year, I decided that I wanted to emphasize the creed. So I bit the bullet. I always do, because I always like talking up to the laity. I have these pastors that constantly tell me, oh, just bring it down, bring it down. You're scaring people. It's too intelligent. And I said, okay, look, Catholicism is the revelation of the eternal trinity in time. How far can you bring that down and still have it remain Catholicism? <laughs> you have to assume, you can't assume that people even know what they're saying when they say the creed every Sunday. And so when I talk to them, especially about Christ, because that was what I was most interested in, well, for a lot of them, it became a big revelation what our traditional doctrine is concerning Christ. Also, I, we have lectures in our parish in Portland and I gave one on the three moral determinants. So our doctor says, what are you going to talk about? What are the three moral determinants? (laughs) I said, well, according to our catechism, that you and I both believe in, they're the foundational principles on which we judge good and evil. Now. He says, "Well, gee, I, I never heard of these things." And I said, "But that's the problem, don't you see? That's the problem." I mean, we have this again. We have an adult education in secular subjects, but we have almost no education whatsoever in human subjects, especially when it comes to our religion. And Catholicism is the most intelligent religion on earth. We're the only religion that believes that faith and reason can be reconciled with each other, and yet well, many Catholics. Want to check their their brain at the door?
0: <laughs> well, I think I'm glad you said that. Father Milady is joining us here at the front line with Joe and Joe because that seems to be one of the main. Um call it a club uh, with which the aggressive atheists, especially over the last couple of decades, uh, beat the Catholic Church over the head. They say, well, yours is a superstition. Um, You uh, you don't, uh, because what you call faith, we call superstition. And it's all unreasonable. And we say, well, wait a minute. What would you call St. Thomas Aquinas? And I'm going to hand this over to Joe because I know he wants to go in this direction. Like, what would you call Aquinas, who, by the way, uh, you know, based his theology uh, in large part on the on the philosophy of Aristotle? Like, what would how could you call that unreasonable? But I want to hand it over to Joe, Joe Restanello.
1: And and another thing about Aquinas, I mean, uh, his 15 proofs, uh, I think, are pretty uh, solid with regard to there is a God. And to your point, Father, I don't think we're formed. Um Talk a little bit about the relevance of Aquinas and Aristotle, but also talk about the lack of formation. I I like the direction you were going with that.
2: Well, Aristotle began his metaphysics with the sentence, all men by nature desire to know. And he has a very long exposition there, which is basically like a history of Greek philosophy. And it begins with the idea that, that people when they first begin to think and that's when you're like seven uh you look at the world around you at nature and things like that and people want to know why nature's the way it is and when you experience the first understanding it's so enticing that it leads people to want to discover now we don't you know, as an, as adults, we're kind of jaded at the idea of discovery, because we've been doing it mostly for our whole life. But I remember we had a seminarian when I, where I taught, and he was in a late vocation, second career vocation. And I think the only reason he wanted to be a priest was so old well, women would cook for him. He used to sleep through all of our classes, and he used to sit right in the front row, and I go kick the desk and say, Would someone please wake Richard up? We're doing important things here. So he came back and he had to get, he became a pastor actually, because they desperately needed it in his diocese. At least got he's not den- a
1: cardinal father. True.
2: <laughs> so, although I think some cardinals think this too. Anyway, he came back and he gave his address to the troops. So it's always what you should have learned and didn't learn, or how useless you're where seminary education was. So he says, well, I have been a pastor for a year and no one in my parish has asked me any questions about theology. Well, we had a very astute Capuchin priest, Franciscan priest, who was our academic dean. And he leaned over to me during this talk and he said, well, evidently, there's a group of people in Richard's parish he's never talked to in the last year, and that is the children. <laughs> because the children ask nothing but theological questions. They ask so
0: they, the best questions. That's the right. kids ask the best questions, and yeah. they can't be dismissed because, because you know, out of the mouths of babes. I mean, you know, they, they ask the best questions. Adults should be asking those questions, Father Milady.
2: Well, and they haven't learned the answers are hard yet either. (laughs) So anyway, he said the first time a person discovered a cause and effect, which is basically what the kids first discover, um, the mind has a dynamism about it that can't be still. You always want to know more. You always want to know why. And he said the first people said, well, the cause of the world, they immediately went to the idea, must be one thing. So uh, anybody who knows about Greek philosophy knows that the supposedly first first philosopher was named Thales, and he thought the cause of the world was water. Remember, they had water, earth, air, and fire. They tried the elements. Well, none of them worked, and the combination didn't work. And then Aristotle, interestingly enough, says the first person who said the cause of the world was mind— spoke like a sober man among drunks, (laughs) but he was talking baby talk because you know how babies use words, but have no idea what they mean. He still meant a material mind. And it wasn't until they bridged the gap that there was a being that was also a spirit, and that's what these five proofs of existence of God are about, and they actually occur in physics, at the end of physics. That's why you know you need another science called beyond physics, metaphysics, because they're spiritual beings. Uh, But the mind still... Is brought to a box canyon there. You, you talk about this when you talk about the resurrection of the dead, too. We're talking about it at Easter. He's brought to a box canyon because there is no solution. You can't get beyond the uh, senses in, uh, realistically in order to truly discover this being in himself. We know that the being exists. But Saint Thomas is always clear. Following Aristotle, when you know something exists, you want to know what it is. If we don't know who God is. We don't know. But what did, he is.
0: didn't John? Didn't uh, and if you're just joining us, your Father Brian Milady is joining us at the front line with Joe and Joe. We're discussing. Um, we're discussing his new book, which is out from Sophia Press, a primer on fundamental moral theology. Uh, father Milady didn't didn't um, Saint John bridge that gap. Uh, with the first few sentences of his gospel, the gap, or, or I don't call it a gap or more of a fulfillment. Obviously, what, you, what Joe and I would take away from you what you're describing here is Logos, the recognition of the Greek philosophical mind of Logos, okay? Where, where, again, they might call it material, but John says that that's God, He you know the, that the Logos is God, the Logos was God, and the Logos became flesh and dwelt among us. Correct me if I'm wrong, but St. John is the one who basically brought the idea of the Logos incarnate to the Greek philosophical mind.
2: No, you're not wrong. But the point I'm making is that by reason alone, we know we don't know the answer. Right. And the trouble is that ever since the Enlightenment began 300 years ago, human beings have tried to find the answer in their reason. Their reason is God, basically. And that's basically since people like Descartes and even uh, Isaac Newton, uh, they were believers, but they were believers in a strange sense. And um, in the 19th century, you were talking about religion being superstition. Once they decided that you reason had no relationship to things that were revealed in the Scripture, really, then our uh, belief in Christ, example, or miracles or whatever, all became superstition. It all became emotional, uh, fulfilling your emotions. Right. It's very much related to this problem of conscience we have now. What is conscience? Because people in our authorities in our church have emphasized only conscience. So what it does mean is there has to be another science, and that science we call revelation. And as you know, revelation is contained in both two sources, scripture and tradition. So... The revelation of St. John, he may use some terms from Greek philosophy, but you'll notice he corrects them. the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God. Uh, Now, Aristotle would have said the Word might be the means by which you know reason and truth, but it's not the same as something that was in the beginning and was God and was with God. Mm. And especially the idea of that becoming flesh, Well, there's no proofs for that. I mean, you can't can't prove it. It's something you have to believe. But it's not an an intellectual belief. It's not a belief that's stupid or emotional like you're talking about. But it's a a, a belief that one of the reasons John says that is because he wants to point out that that's real. It's objective and it was realized in time and not just an emotional prejudice on someone's. Someone was talking, oh, I know, it was Carl Anderson. They gave him this award at this banquet I was at the other night, and he was talking about the fact that Thomas Jefferson, remember, produced the New Testament where he crossed all the miracles out. Yeah. And all those things were results of superstition. They were all results of emotional um, poverty where you, you needed this. And and that all comes from the philosopher Immanuel Kant. Mm-hmm. Kant did not believe you could discover God in any sense by reason, but he was a believing Lutheran, pious Lutheran. And so he said, well, if we can't discover him objectively like we do science then it must he he must exist because he just has to because i need him so god's proof became reduced to our emotional need which was superstition or piety and it didn't matter what the being was like you know as long as if, if you needed god to be a woman today god was a woman today if you needed god to be a, a general he was a general today and if you, if you, if there was no objective god that you could discover Now we don't believe that in Catholicism. You know, revelation is reasonable, but we can't arrive at it by reason. It has to be a gift given to us by
0: God. Absolutely, Father. Father Brian, um, Milady is joining us here at the front line with Joe and Joe. If you're just joining us at the Veritas Catholic Radio Network, uh, his new book is out from Sophia Press, A Primer on Fundamental Moral Theology. I think that this is an important conversation. We're very, we're very honored to have Father here to discuss this book. Joe Restinello, where do you want to go,
1: Father? In the American Catholic Church, this idea of like primacy of conscience has basically permeated everywhere. I mean, it, you see it, you know all over the place i mean ultimately the church is here to help form the culture not vice versa and we're and we're seeing that like in germany right now you know uh like it's a good concrete example um god reaches you know down to man you know to help us but ultimately we want to change god uh and i think that's at the fundamental uh like you know issue the root problem of american catholicism uh that this this idea that we basically you know follow our own conscience well ultimately many people are sincere father as mother angelica has said but they're sincerely wrong uh when it comes to things talk about that because i think that's a big issue
2: well and it's especially a big issue now But, you know, when I taught Catholic high school, I'm not that particularly interested in moral theology. But when I taught Catholic high school in the 70s, I began to realize from my teaching that people were changing our doctrine to fit their moral practice. And, of course, the big wall in moral practice is the nature of sexuality, and what they tried to do was reduce everything in sexuality, especially contraception. That was the, the big battle, that was the, the front, you know, the battle, to your feelings. Like, just like this thing about God is reduced to your feelings. Well, there's nothing reasonable about conscience that you can use as a standard on which to judge other people, consciousness defined is how you particularly feel about this. And if you feel okay with God, then everything's fine. The trouble is that, of course, that really does open you to relativism. Now, these people didn't want to make morals completely relativistic, but in fact, they succeeded in the sense that it became more and more a relative experience. So the uh, idea that conscience is a feeling is again contrary to our intellectual nature. If you look at the Catechism, you will discover that the Catechism says conscience is a syllogism, a logical syllogism with a major, a minor, and a conclusion, that conscience that is the ultimate standard for morality. And like all syllogisms, it can logic. You can be wrong in logic because your premises are wrong, or your construction of them is wrong. Conscience is the same. So, if you want to say the conscience is the ultimate place where morals occurs, where God speaks to you, that's very true. But you have to add the word "right," correct conscience, not mistaken conscience. And not, not very few people today are willing to add that word. Uh, I remember in the late 70s, there was a book that came out from the Catholic Theological Society of America. And I'm quoted in the book. And it was called Guidelines to Human Sexuality. And in that book, they make sexuality and its morality depend on how you feel about it. So much so that they even managed to justify bestiality. <laughs> And these are Catholic priests who are theologians, and that was in 79. And then, of course, we had the fundamental option people who didn't believe you could commit a mortal sin because they were, you couldn't gather all your forces enough to fully uh, challenge God. So therefore, uh, you, you were never committing a mortal sin until your death. Maybe it's your death, maybe then. And then, of course, you had that school that was very, very prevalent. I actually wrote my thesis against it, but in a clandestine way, and I think it's back with us, called Consequentialism. Mm. And Consequentialism taught, if you blow it all down, its origin was a Jesuit thinker named Karl Rahner. And it taught that there were two systems of morals. One was the laws, the universal laws. The, this is contraception is wrong. The other was your particular perception of those laws, and they maintain that every single universal statement, and that would include the law, is always faulty and has to be supplemented with a further system, a second system, of ethics. Where you discern the Holy Spirit using the laws of discernment in St. Ignatius, and the Holy Spirit in your conscience can lead you to discern that your particular course of action you want to follow is more uh, preserving of the value that the law means to conserve than the law, and therefore you can disobey the law. Uh, and 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 that of course led to two systems of morals, uh, one of which contradicts the other in certain cases. But that's the one you have to follow—the one in your conscience.
0: Father, let me ask you this to cut you off for real quick: Is would you describe, or would I be wrong to describe uh, consequentialism as the ends justifying the means?
2: Uh, no, you wouldn't. But that's not the way they would describe it. Okay, because they would say that what you're discerning in your second system of it, it's very sophisticated but wrong. that what you're discerning in your conscience is changes in a sense the uh means to fit the end better than the law does. Than the universal prohibition, or, well, well, it could be a positive law, too. So that uh, uh, affects things like, well, we're having a big debate over euthanasia now, uh, your nature of life. Again, contraception, which is always the thing people want justified, even though it hasn't done any good to Europe. And it actually began, as you know, in the French Revolution and Malthusianism. Um, and uh, it just goes down the list and the reason is because people don't have a realistic understanding of what the church teaches about what makes something truly moral or not and according to our doctrine you have to look at a moral action from two points of view one is your responsibility in doing it which is determined by the will. The other is what the nature of it is as far as fulfilling your soul or not in your request to experience a relationship with God. And that is what are known as the three moral determinants, and they're determined by reason. So in the three moral determinants, you have the object which is what the action's about. Murder is the unjust taking of innocent human life. Now you'll notice the word "innocence" used there. I remember many years ago there was some debate about. Well, of course you have killing in war for the police or in the army, but even you know capital punishment. And I was teaching a bunch of deacons, and um, I think it was actually in Newburgh, New York and so one of the people said every single person in this room thinks capital punishments a sin in itself and i said well everybody but me <laughs> and they but you're the teacher i said yes i know and uh it, 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 this little word "in" this is before the Catechism came out. So once the Catechism came out, I mean, I know that John, uh, Francis doesn't like capital punishment, nor did John Paul II. So they made it as little wiggle room in order to do it as possible. However.
0: Father, real quick, I want I want you to finish that thought. But we are up against a hard break, so we're going to take a quick break. Come right back. We're debt. We're definitely interested in what you have to say there. Father Brian Mullady is joining us here at the front line with Joe and Joe on the Veritas Catholic Radio Network. His new book, A Primer on Fundamental Moral Theology. We say all the time at the show, we as Catholics in America, we're up against the wall. We have to equip ourselves. Aside from the grace of God, which is the most important thing that we receive in the sacraments, we have to equip ourselves with the knowledge. We have to increase our knowledge of our faith and what's going on out there. So a primer on fundamental moral theology, the author, Father Brian Malady. the publisher, Sophia Press. So stick around. We have another great segment. We want to pick that up on uh, Capital Punishment when we, when we come back from the break.
1: Catholic Radio Works, And now we have it here in Connecticut and New York. It's been seen around the country that there's no better tool for evangelization. Where there's Catholic radio, the folks who listen deepen their faith. Families are strengthened. Parishes and communities flourish. So let people know you're listening to Veritas. Tell your friends to tune in and let's make an impact here for Jesus and his church. This is Steve Lee for Veritas Catholic Network.
0: Welcome back, everyone, to The Frontline with Joe and Joe. Joe Piscillo and Joe Racinello. We are Way in the Breach with Father Brian Mullady. We're discussing his new book, A Primer on Fundamental Moral Theology. Please purchase it from the publisher, Sophia Press. Now, Father, just to recap for those people just joining us, when we ended at the break, uh, Father was talking about the Catechism uh, vis-a-vis Capital Punishment and John Paul II and Pope Francis uh, leaving very little room there. Father, you pick it up from there.
2: Well, uh, yes, but you'll notice that John Paul II never said it was a sin in itself, nor does, interestingly enough, Pope Francis, he uses some other word. And the term, which is the distinguishing term there in reason, is innocent. <laughs> and uh, when Benedict, Pope Benedict, remember, wrote a letter, about guiding communion for politicians dissenting from church-teaching Catholic politicians um, To the during the election a number of years ago to uh, the conference, he said there are some issues of which there is legitimate debate, like what war may be a just war or what criminal might be liable to the death penalty. There's some other issues about which there is no debate, and that's because they don't admit of any, um, you know, their uh, um, absolutes, and that is uh, euthanasia and abortion. And the reason is because in reason, the, the, the reason, the explanation of those things in regard to the soul and that sort of thing are what are the important things. It's more than just killing a man. If killing a man were always evil, then a a policeman killing someone in the line of duty would be evil. So there has to be some sort of distinction made in that. And that distinction needs to be recognized as possible. And a Catholic therefore could dissent from certain teachings of the Holy See, said Pope Benedict, on those issues. Interestingly enough, that letter was sent to Bishop, uh, now Cardinal Gregory, and Cardinal Carrick, (laughs) who was still around at the time, and they didn't manage to share that somehow with the conference. (laughs) But the idea would be that just because something looks a certain way doesn't mean that's what the objective nature of it is morally. So, for example, taking something that belongs to someone else, if their consent is presumed, then that's a loan. If uh, it's against their will, that's theft. If their will isn't reasonable in this, for example, I'm dying of thirst in a desert and I come on a well and it says $5 for a drink and I don't have any money, I can use that thing, and that's not theft. That's their problem. Their will is unreasonable. So in order to examine various actions, you have to examine, first of all, the objective nature. If that doesn't give you the answer then you also go to the circumstances in which something is found. Using my example of capital punishment, suppose I said, well, I'm on death row and I'm with someone else who's on death row, and so I kill them, and they're going to be executed anyway, so I haven't committed murder in that. Oh, yes, you have, by uh, a circumstance, because the only person who has a right to implement any penalty like that has to represent the society and be lawfully designated to do so, and you weren't. You did that as a private person. And then, of course, you include that. And the third thing, if they can't be judged totally from either of those things, the third thing is intention. What was my intention in doing something? And that can corrupt even good things. So in the play *Murder in the Cathedral about the death of Thomas Beckett, there's the line uh, the last temptation is the final treason to do the right thing for the wrong reason. And he, in the um, gospel passages for Lent, especially the one for Ash Wednesday, Christ talks about very good actions, you know, fasting, giving, and prayer, and uh, the Sermon on the Mount. But then he says, but if you do these for vainglory, you don't get anything out of them. You have the wrong mm-hmm. intention." And the same thing is true uh, during Lent, we're supposed to be examining our intentions for doing things because that's our personal reason we do it. So suppose in my example of capital punishment, I was the lawfully designated executioner. The person had been you know, judged properly. Everything is proper. But I did this in motives of private revenge then I'd still be guilty of murder because I have the wrong intention. And uh, those three things are at the basis of all objective morals. And there are oftentimes people who recommend actions that in themselves are objectively wrong, and then they claim the conscience allowed them to do that. You can't. The conscience has to reflect what the objectivity is.
0: Well, we're glad you made that distinction for us here, Father Milady. Joining us here at the front line with Joe and Joe, please go out and buy the book, A Primer on Fundamental Moral Theology, Father. Just a full disclosure, I find this conversation fascinating. Um, and like I said earlier at the beginning of the show, it, we Joe and I learn as much as we want our audience to learn. That's why we're blessed uh, to have a show where we can interview, you know, someone like yourself in the Catholic world, obviously a Catholic priest, to talk about these things that are a vital. Importance. So let me with that hand hand it over to Joe. Uh, we want to cover a couple different you know, a couple different areas. Joe Resinello.
1: Yeah. I, I want to talk about, though, you mentioned like objective basic truths within mm-hmm. the church. Um, this is something though, that I think causes issue. the recognition of authority within the church. Ultimately, like I didn't go to the evangelical, I didn't go to the Gregorian, and I can't explain things the way you just did. I can't, I'll be honest. But what I do recognize is the church has authority, and I don't. Even if I could reason, you know, through X, Y, or Z, if the church says, I'm just, you know, that I have to receive communion in a state of grace this is a teaching of the church well the church has authority and i don't so therefore the church trumps my conscience because i'm nobody i'm going to die (laughs) and if i want to get into heaven i have to listen to that authority which is god himself through the body which is the church that's what's not going on father i think sometimes people are too smart for their own good They talk themselves through things, but ultimately none of us have authority. Um, I call it the Forrest Gump approach to the church. Why are you doing this? Because you said so. Because you have authority and I don't. Talk about that, because I think a lot of our problems stem from our lack of obedience and recognition of authority. All
2: right, yes, Catholicism is as a religion based in authority. You can see that by the fact, and some of the German bishops may find that out soon, by when they deny the authority of the papacy, and this has always been true, they undermine their own authority because the authority of the papacy helps to unify theirs. And once they deny their own authority, then they, it's like we had a priest once who was doing something in liturgy And some people came from Rome and they said, you are not obeying us. And so this priest said, yeah, but you're not obeying the Missal, the Pope. So let me get this straight. I'm supposed to obey you, but you're not supposed to obey the Pope. How does that work?
0: (laughs) Well, obviously, obviously it doesn't. Go ahead, Father.
2: So, uh, obviously, so uh, Christ established a church with authority. Remember, the purpose isn't to establish our doctrine. I mean, our doctrine should be established by us, in a sense, because we're the ones that believe. We, I, I've had so many people ever since the Second Vatican Council will always say, well, unless the Pope tells me, I don't have to do that. And I say, yeah, but you know, the papacy rarely intervened in the past because most Catholics believe what they were supposed to believe. They intervene mostly when they want to unify our doctrine and be sure that we know what we're supposed to believe. And as Jesus said, when he made Peter, uh, you know, uh, not the famous text about the keys, but the other text uh, Uh, Simon Peter, I prayed for you that your faith may not fail and you in believing strengthen and confirm your brothers and the brothers there are interpreted to be the other apostles that the Pope has as his purpose not new doctrines in which we only believe in authority but to clarify the body of what we always have believed what was in the mind of the apostles for especially bishops who are also associates with him. No other bishop has such authority. The only pope was, in a sense, the bishop of the bishops. There's no other bishop that could speak for the whole church. It's one of the reasons why we put him in the canon, along with the local bishop, because he's present in each church as opposed to the local bishop who's only in his particular diocese. So the, it's true that um, a lot of people, well, authorities in mess everywhere, and state, too. Most people don't care what anybody says when it comes to obedience, even in the school, even in your home. But the uh, uh, point of authority is to affirm what the apostles believed. And as a result, you know, the Pope doesn't just wake up and have a new revelation today we, that's what Mormons believe, you know, progressive revelation. We don't believe. He's a servant of the servants. I remember Bishop Shin. Uh, he gave a talk once in the late 60s, and he made a pyramid. I was present for this talk, and he said, well, we used to believe, they say in Vatican II, that it was God, Pope, cardinals, blah, blah, blah. And now it's just this big blob, God and the people. He says, well, it's true. It's not God, Pope, bishops, blah, blah, blah. And then he reversed the triangle, and he'd say it's the God and the Pope serves the cardinals, and the cardinals serve the bishops, and the bishops serve the laity. That's the proper model, not the other way around.
0: <laughs> well, I'm going to—go so- I'm, I'm go ahead, Father, go ahead. So, oh, yes, of course, there are
2: many moral questions that can be quite complicated, and we do need uh, authorities to help us to do that. And that's not just the Pope, but also theologians and that, that kind of thing. But uh, I, in the final analysis, it's true. We all give ourselves totally to authority. But there are also reasonable arguments that help to support the arguments of the authority. And in cases like sexual ethics, most of those can be discovered in the natural law, too. So, you know, to say I'm just reducing this to a fight about authority, whether it's defined or not, I happen to believe the encyclical on birth control is defined Uh, doctrine. You have to believe it to be a Catholic But to say that's the only reason I believe it is like tying one hand behind my back in a boxing match and refusing to allow reason to have its place. So there are reasons why we do believe that. And also, and not just scriptural reasons, although sometimes there are. For example, in that thing I gave you about capital punishment, uh, they do quote scripture, thou shalt not slay the righteous and the innocent faith uh, interestingly in the catechism and what's strange to me is that Pope Francis obviously doesn't like capital punishment at all and they changed it to not even allow a little hole in it but they didn't change the definition of murder so it's confusing <laughs> and from your authority you don't want confusion that's the thing you know you want clarity so
1: go ahead joe it's my biggest problem to be honest with you with uh this particular pope um there is a lack of clarity um you know like there's a lot of debate that goes around that was always from the beginning i always said that to my wife uh jesus you always knew where jesus stood always and we, as Catholics, never mind the Pope, we sh- our yes should be yes and our no should be no. People should always know where we stand. And I think, and again, I'm not throwing stones at the Pope, but just as the, a regular no. guy, there's a lack of clarity. And yeah. that's, to me, again, I'm nobody. It's, I think that's dangerous because it allows people to then go in places that they, may sh- they shouldn't go. And not everyone is formed, as you rightly said, Father. And then people start to justify behaviors that are sinful, and they think it's okay, and souls are lost. That's just my opinion. And again, no, I'm nobody. True.
2: <laughs> well, no, it's true. I mean, and it's not just true in this country. It's true in Europe. The only places that seem to be preserving some measure of true orthodox morals are Africa and Vietnam and places like that. Europe is just a simple, you know. I mean, they gosh, Spain approved same-sex marriage a long time before we did, and that's a Catholic college country, for heaven's sake.
0: It's a shame what's happening, Father. By the way, it's a shame. Uh, that people don't realize, you know, all our lives, you know, when you talk about, let's say, the politically correct left, okay? Oh, well, who are we to impose our values on these other countries? You know, who are we to impose our Western values? But the African countries that are saying, hold it, like Uganda, all right? They're saying, hold it. We're not interested in abortion. We are not interested in LGBT. Back off. We're not having it, right? now all of a sudden the same people that say you can't impose western values 10 20 30 40 years ago are the ones saying oh no 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 we have to impose our our western secular values on these people because uh and and the and the implicit racism underneath in other words basically saying and unfortunately some in the church um and and, and if i remember correctly some disparaging comments uh that came out of some german bishops yeah, mouths like, vis-a-vis like African cardinals and bishops, really, you know, it's it's funny how things have been turned on their head, it seems, Father, in because regards like to Africa. Like, like
2: National socialism is such, a, such an obvious moral, I mean, it's it, it, beggars belief, some of it, you know, I mean, uh, I just, and like the British, the things that they approve, all of course in good taste and all properly annotated but um, and the French oh my gosh you know and uh, what I found when I lived in Europe for six years was that people aren't anti-religious they're just cynical about religion so well you know I lived in Italy If if you have a procession the whole place shows up but if you have mass or you talk about morals well, you know, you might get two percent, and then uh, I used to love the confessions. The uh, men always used to begin their confessions when, at least where I heard them in Sicily. Uh, I'm a good man. I don't commit sins. I didn't kill anybody. I didn't steal anything. Well, do you go to Mass? No. I do have a few women, though. But I'm a good man. I don't commit sins. I'm a father of a family. I just want to celebrate Easter with my family. And so there was actually a sign and the friend of one of the churches, and it said, do not begin your confession with what you did not do.
0: Nice. <laughs> Got to love it. Father, let's yeah. talk about the, we have a limited amount of time. I, I think this is important. I could hear maybe somebody out in our audience uh, saying, okay, uh, fundamentals of uh, of moral theology. By the way, if you're just joining us, this is uh, the book written by Father Milady is a primer on fundamental moral theology. To try, I could hear that person say, well, what does this have to do with me? In other words, how do I, you know, how do I as a person, what is the relationship between, let's say, for argument's sake, uh, my passions and desires, which are obviously there as a human being, my intellect, my will? I don't want to get too far into the weeds, okay, but give our audience, and Joe and I, the basic proper relationship as seen by the church, as taught by the church, between the will, the intellect, and the passions,
2: Okay, well, uh, the will is like the feet, the intellect is like the eyes, all on the journey toward heaven, and your passions are uh, supports to help you to get there in an easier and delightful way. And any morals that denies either one of those three things makes it almost impossible for us to have a realistic human formation and therefore also to go to heaven. So uh, there are people who've been only rationalists. All you have to do is know. doesn't matter if you love. All right. Then you have people who everything is love, love. I have a, Franciscan friend, he used to say to me, Father Brian, now remember God is love, and I said yes, and remember he's also truth, because you could love falsely. (laughs) You know, your love could lead you to rush to a place, and actually the lack of truth could lead you to fall over a cliff while you're getting there. And then uh, your passions are, again, like emotional supports, and unfortunately in our church, because of Jansenism, partially I think, but not just because of Jansenism, but for almost 300 years, people had the idea, now maybe not the Italians, but a, lot, a few other people that have less interest in their passions and emotions, that the way you become a virtuous person was not to feel, period. And uh, I uh, always use the example from the old movie, The Song of Bernadette. Uh, the mother superior who doesn't believe Bernadette's actually seen Mary so she says to her because she hasn't suffered enough so she says to her in very uh, almost very um, just to pull dispassionately, all throughout sacred time, God has only come to those who have suffered. How can you say you have seen her when you have not suffered as I have? Look at my eyes, they burn like the very fires of hell from lack of sleep, I will not give them. My lips are parched from constant prayer. My hands are racked from serving God. My back is gnawed from cold stone floors. And that's presented as spiritual perfection. It, it's not... I mean, a, a person should be more or less... Now, of course, we do suffer. Obviously, suffering is a part of the deal, but we should be more or less happy in our religion. And yet the way some Catholics come to Mass, they look like they're being dragged to Dachau, you know, to be executed. Uh, and they won't set foot in the Church because some priests looked at them cross-eyed when they were four years old or five years old. I mean, they don't allow anybody to have any kind of human weakness in, in that regard. I was like the sisters, you know. I was taught by the sisters of St. Joseph. And they'll say, oh, well, the nuns, they used to beat people and things like that. And I'll say, well, I don't know. I, I never had any nuns like that in California. But I will tell you this. I was dealing with young girls who were probably in their 20s, just out of the novitiate, who were getting their education and teaching and had 65 children in a class. How many people today can have more than 20 children in a class? You know, it had to be regimentation. You couldn't do it any other way. <laughs> and, of course, in those days, people's affirmed authority. They don't affirm authority now. Uh, as a teacher, I can tell you, you know, 30 years ago, if you sent a kid home or, you know, the parents were right there. Uh, now it's your fault.
0: <laughs> no, I know. Well, now they want to sue you. I mean, we, Joe and I have said on the show all the time, um, you know, uh, yeah, exactly. If my mother got called to school, are you kidding me? No, yeah. as I was toast. Nowadays, when the mother gets called to school, they yell at the teacher, how dare you call me to school? I'm my little Johnny or, or little Susie. Um, and, Father, here's the thing I'd love for you to comment on. Joe says on the show all the time, well, how's all that working out for you? Go look out the window. You mentioned they rail against regimentation and strict nuns and this and that and they don't want to go back to the bad old days what have you produced as an alternative europe or america what have you produced that could, could in any way shape or form counter what pr- was produced by the catholic church for for for, for uh, from the time of the fall of the roman empire what have you produced that could rival that civilization I don't think they produced anything. Bob.
2: No, I, I agree with you. I agree with Bob about 100%. I just want to say, how are you doing anyway? <laughs> yeah. Even the hospital system. I mean, we had a hospital system that rivaled none in a way. And now that all the sisters have left and everything's gotten bought up by these conglomerates and that thing is so expensive, it, 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 we can't provide the health care for poor people like we used to. People used to just bring people in, you know. They didn't care. And uh, anyway, uh, it, answer to answer your question about the three all the determinants, though, they're all equally necessary. And every single one has to be nurtured. Uh, the passions we share with the animals, it's true, the feelings, the emotions, but they're naturally born to be obedient to reason too and if they become uh, um, formed by reason they can be sublime so uh, you, and, and also they can help you uh, one of the reasons people had such great difficulty converting to christianity in christ's time was the philosophy of the roman empire was stoicism and the one emotion the stoics hated was to have sorrow We weren't supposed to ever feel sad. Just stiff upper lip, that was it. Well, of course, Christ has described whose sorrow is like to my sorrow, to his sorrow. So um, all these things have to be done justice to. And regarding your comment about authority, remember, law is a part of the deal, law and grace. And uh, uh, we still use the term St. Thomas used for law, his definition, even in secular schools, an ordinance of reason made for the common good by him who has the proper authority and promulgated. If any of those things are lacking, it doesn't matter whether well, how something looks like a law, it's not a law, and it doesn't oblige your conscience to obedience. So if it's not reason, uh, according to reason, in other words, if it orders you to do something which is contrary to human nature, you have an obligation not to obey. And our country's loaded now with laws that are, oh, gosh, the, you know, pronoun trouble. I just talked to a poor pastor in Portland. His grammar school has just been smitten with pronoun trouble. Because you know, what what's your chosen pronoun for the day? Well, the Archbishop wrote a letter about that, which was very good. And they read it, and it caused his parents and his teachers to divide in the school over what the proper pronoun should attitude towards your pronoun should be. I mean
1: <laughs> crazy. I don't, well,
0: this I, is it <laughs> Father, this is the detet- this is the detachment from reality, from objective truth. Oh yeah. Um, yeah, I mean I mean obviously, you know, you 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 when you deny basic reality. All right. And then you want to claim that you're right about it. Father, we could go on. Unfortunately, we're up against the uh, time yeah. limit here. We could go on for hours. We'd love to have you back. You're certainly welcome back on our show anytime to discuss these very weighty issues, not just to discuss your book, which we want our audience to go out and buy. Remember, the book is a primer on fundamental moral theology that's available at Sophia Press. Father, I got 20 seconds. Final thought for our audience.
2: Uh just love God and try to discern what you're doing in your faith. And I have to say, I love talking to New Yorkers, and I especially love talking to you. So, <laughs>
0: well, thank you very much, Father. We really appreciate you coming on the show. Like I said, you're welcome back anytime. We look forward to to having you back. This was a great conversation. I know our audience is going to benefit from it, and I know Joe and I have benefited from it. So, thank you very much.
2: Okay, Joe and Joe, uh-
0: thank. Thanks, Father. And thank you out there for joining us at the Veritas Catholic Radio Network, 1350 on your AM dial, 103.9 on your FM dial. Spreading the truth of the Catholic faith to the New York City metropolitan area. Two things, download the app, the Veritas Catholic Radio Network mobile app so you have access to all of our station's content, not just Frontline with Joe and Joe. And please follow Joe and I and help us out in social media, primarily at The Frontline TV on YouTube and at With Joe and Joe on Twitter. We're trying to grow our audience in both on both of those channels so please help us out wherever you can and remember until the next time that our conversation is your conversation and that conversation is going on everywhere we'll talk to you soon